Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. This is the first lecture discussing issues pertaining directly to the shoulder. It is a brief and rather straightforward lecture going over shoulder anatomy. It focuses specifically on testable information pertaining to the shoulder girdle and should serve as a nice introduction to the next several lectures discussing specific shoulder pathology. All right, let's get started. So first, what makes up the shoulder girdle? There's the sternoclavicular joint, the clavicle, the acromioclavicular joint, the scapula, the glenohumeral joint, and the scapulothoracic joint. So let's start proximally and work distally, beginning with the sternoclavicular joint. The sternoclavicular joint is a diarthrodial joint between the clavicle and the sternum. Remember that the clavicle is the first bone to ossify, and the medial clavicular physis is the last physis to close around the age of 25. That is why it would be very rare to have a sternoclavicular dislocation as a teenager. Instead, what you would be looking at is a physeal fracture. The static stabilizers of the sternoclavicular joint are the anterior and posterior sternoclavicular ligaments. Now, how does the sternoclavicular joint move? If you elevate your arm 90 degrees, the sternoclavicular joint will rotate 30 degrees. What is the name of the radiographic test to evaluate for a sternoclavicular dislocation, and how is it performed? It is called the serendipity view and shot with the x-ray beam tilted 40 degrees cephalad and centered with the beam over the sternoclavicular joint. But even this view can be rather difficult to interpret, so a CT scan remains the imaging modality of choice to look for sternoclavicular dislocations. Now on the other end of the clavicle lies the acromioclavicular joint. This is also a diarthrodial joint. There is very limited motion. We will talk about this later in terms of AC joint arthritis, found particularly common in weightlifters. Important testable anatomic components of the AC joint are that the superior and posterior ligaments of the acromioclavicular ligaments provide the majority of horizontal stability to the joint. You want to avoid damaging these structures during a distal clavicle excision. The coracoclavicular ligaments provide the majority of vertical stability at the AC joint. The trapezoid inserts 3 centimeters from the edge of the clavicle, and the conoid inserts 4.5 centimeters from the edge of the clavicle. This is important to remember during coracoclavicular ligament reconstructions. Let's move on now to some scapular mechanics. We'll briefly talk about the scapular thoracic joint. First, as a great medical student question, and to give them something to do during surgery, is to ask how many muscles insert on the scapula. The answer is 17. 17 muscles insert on the scapula. Then give them a marking pen and ask them to make the list. I'm not going to do this here. So how does the scapula move? The scapula rotates with glenohumeral abduction, and it acts to protract and retract during flexion and extension. The glenohumeral joint moves at a 2 to 1 ratio with the scapulothoracic joint. Remember that the scapular plane is 30 degrees anterior to the coronal plane of the body. In order for the arm to fully elevate, the scapula must externally rotate. This allows for the greater tuberosity to clear the acromion. Without the scapular external rotation, the greater tuberosity will impinge on the acromion. In order to fully achieve 180 degrees of motion, the scapula thoracic joint rotates 60 degrees and the glenohumeral joint rotates 120 degrees. So remember, that is a 2 to 1 ratio of glenohumeral motion versus scapulothoracic motion. We will talk more about the scapula in relation to scapular winging in a later lecture. Let's move on now to the structures that allow for stability at the glenohumeral joint. We will talk about four static stabilizers and three dynamic stabilizers. What are the four static stabilizers? There are the glenohumeral ligaments, the glenoid labrum, and components of the osseous anatomy, including 
articular congruity, and the negative intraarticular pressure. Now, what are the three dynamic restraints? There's the rotator cuff, the biceps tendon, and the periscapular musculature. So first, let's begin talking about the glenohumeral ligaments. The superior glenohumeral ligament, middle glenohumeral ligament, and inferior glenohumeral ligament. For testing purposes, the superior glenohumeral ligament acts as a restraint to inferior translation when the arm is at zero degrees of abduction or at the patient's side. The middle glenohumeral ligament prevents anterior and posterior translation when the arm is at 45 degrees of abduction and external rotation. Again, 45 degrees of abduction and external rotation. The inferior glenohumeral ligament is far and away the most tested static stabilizer of the joint. The anterior inferior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is the primary restraint to anterior inferior force with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and maximum external rotation. Remember, this is the same position you will place the patient's shoulder in when performing an apprehension relocation test. The anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament attaches to the anterior labrum. During a shoulder dislocation, this can become torn, creating a bankart lesion. The posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is an important restraint to posterior subluxation with the arm at 90 degrees of flexion and internal rotation. Injuries to this area are found in people engaged in pressing activities, such as offensive linemen on a football team or weightlifters. This is also the position you will place the patient's arm in when performing a Kim or jerk test. For completeness sake, the coracohumeral ligament limits posterior translation when the arm is flexed, adducted, and in internal rotation. The next static stabilizer I want to discuss is the glenoid labrum. The labrum acts as a bumper surrounding the glenoid. Two important anatomic positions on the labrum are the anchor for the biceps tendon superiorly and the anchor point for the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. The biceps tendon tends to attach to the labrum in a posterior or posterior dominant position relative to the 12 o'clock position in up to 70% of patients, while only 25% of patients have an equal distribution anterior and posterior. Very rarely, in less than 5% of patients, the tendon will be attached purely anterior to the 12 o'clock position. The labrum adds depth to the glenoid, increasing the socket depth by 50%. There are several anatomic variants of the glenoid labrum. A sublabel foramen will be seen in approximately 10 to 12% of the population. The Buford complex is a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament that attaches to the base of the biceps anchor with an absence of the anterior superior labrum. This is important to recognize because attempting to fix a Buford complex will lead to decreased external rotation, elevation, and a very angry patient. All right, let's briefly talk about the rotator interval. What are the boundaries of the rotator interval? It is shaped like a triangle with the medial border or base of the triangle as the lateral side of the coracoid. It is bordered superiorly by the anterior edge of the supraspinatus. The inferior border is the superior border of the subscapularis and the lateral apex or point of the triangle is the transverse humeral ligament. A key testable item is what structures are contained within the rotator interval. There is the superior glenohumeral ligament, the coracohumeral ligament, the long head of the biceps, and the capsule within the interval.
Another item found on exams involving the rotator interval is that an MRI of a patient with adhesive capsulitis may show contracture of the rotator interval. Now let's move on to some dynamic stabilizers of the shoulder. The rotator cuff contributes to the dynamic stabilization of the shoulder joint. It increases the concavity compression and centers the humeral head on the glenoid during shoulder motion. It is also important to mention that the biceps tendon acts as a humeral head depressor. We will also talk about superior labral anterior posterior tears or slap tears and how they relate to the bicep tendon as well. Finally, let's go over some osseous anatomy. If you're looking at the humerus from above, you'll see that the humeral head is retroverted 30 degrees from the epicondylar axis of the distal humerus. The humeral head is inclined 130 degrees from the shaft of the humerus. The glenoid is tilted up approximately 5 degrees. There is also a significant amount of variation in the version of the glenoid. It averages approximately 5 degrees of retroversion in relation to the scapular plane. However, it can vary from 10 degrees of anaversion to 27 degrees of retroversion. Alright, what three muscles attach to the coracoid? The coracobrachialis, the pectoralis minor, and the short head of the biceps. Remember that the musculocutaneous nerve enters the biceps approximately 5 to 8 centimeters distal to the coracoid process. The last structure I want to mention, because it is both tested quite often and addressed surgically, is the acromion. The acromion has three ossification centers, the meta, the meso, and the preacromion. Test questions may address an os acromanale, or the failure of ossification most commonly occurring between the mesa and meta ossification centers, best seen on an axillary radiograph. This occurs in approximately 8% of the population, and when it does occur, it will be seen bilaterally in up to 60%. Normal acromiohumeral distance is approximately 7 to 8 millimeters. This should be evaluated with the patient upright, so don't be misled by a decreased distance on a supine MRI scan. A decreased distance may indicate a massive rotator cuff tear with superior humeral head migration. There are three types of acromiomorphology that we will discuss later. Type 1 is a flat acromion, type 2 is curved, and type 3 is hooked. It is felt that acromiomorphology may contribute to rotator cuff impingement and subsequent rotator cuff tearing. What is the main blood supply to the humeral head? The general consensus is the posterior humeral circumflex artery is felt to contribute more significantly to the blood supply of the humeral head. Previous literature, and therefore questions, have stated that the anterior humeral circumflex artery was the dominant blood supply. However, recent literature has shown it to be the posterior humeral circumflex artery. Alright, that concludes our shoulder anatomy lecture. The lectures from here on out are going to focus on specific shoulder pathology, and we will begin next time with a lecture on the rotator cuff. As always, check back frequently for updates in addition to the lecture series. Thanks for listening.